Well, good afternoon, all of you. This is the seventh Sabbath on the Count to Pentecost. That means it's been 49 days since we started. And he says the 50th then is Pentecost. Count 50. Not on Monday, it's on Sunday. That'd be 51 days. I don't know how we screwed that one up so long, but we did. Anyway, God says this is the time of restoral. In fact, there in Malachi 4, he says that all things will be restored here at the end. So, a message of repentance and of, of deliverance and restoral is certainly uh, what we need to be involved with. Because that's what God is doing. So tomorrow at 1 o'clock will be our normal service time for the Holy Days. Uh, 1 o'clock tomorrow for Pentecost. Now we've been talking these seven weeks about repentance, but more about uh, deliverance and restoring uh, we've talked an awful lot about repentance over the last uh, 27 years since this message came clear. And indeed, that's what Peter preached there on, in Acts 2. If you go back, uh, the people says, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. And at the same time, they were being delivered from the Jews and the Romans to God, to Christ. And the truths of old were being restored to a lot of people who came to hear. And that's what we've been doing these last years, is preaching that those who were scattered from Laodicea be repentant and everything that that means, and then deliverance and restoral would come. Uh, meantime, uh, we're being delivered from quite a bit of false doctrine, and having an awful lot of that restored to what it should have been. Things such as uh, Passover on the correct day, uh, there's a biggie, uh, the proper order of the uh, Passover service itself, or, okay, uh, that was always the question, why do we wash feet? and then partake of bread and eat it with uh, unwashed hands. Uh, that was always a kind of a mysterious thing. And people would say, did the preacher wash his hands before he started breaking that bread? Uh, well, we had it backwards, that's all. And isn't it, doesn't it make all logic that you get your relationship with God repaired first, the bread and the wine with Christ, and then it turns to helping each other with the foot washing. God first, man second. So, even in any kind of logic, that makes sense. Plus, what does the Bible say? And Luke showed very clearly. And we read that in John. Don't we go back and do, we do the bread and wine, then we wash the feet, and then continue with the message, because that's what he did after dinner was done. It's just so simple, and yet we had it backward all those decades. And there have been other things like that uh, that have been restored. Uh, 
proper calendar where the Jews had it all messed up and were just sort of moving days around to put them where they wanted them. They kind of understood the heavens to a certain degree, but they ignored them because they wanted to do it a different way. Uh, is that what God wants? So there were a lot of things like that uh, that I think God has shown us to get squared away, straightened out. And now even finally, for the first time, after how many decades, since 1926 when the Sabbath was first given to Herbert Armstrong, uh, until nearly a hundred years later now, we... Uh, where was I going with that? Now, I lost it. It'll, it'll probably swirl back through it a minute. Uh, but we've had all this time that some things simply were not right and had to be restored to what the Bible itself says. He restored many things. They used to say he had restored 39, uh, but I think when you realize some of the things that he restored were at the wrong time or in a wrong way, uh, it wasn't quite that many, uh, but other things have had to be straightened out. And we've done that as we've uh, come across them and understood them. Oh, I know, over a hundred years, and we never had understood the typology or the meaning of the last day of unleavened bread. Uh, one of the seven important holy days of the year, and we never understood what it was talking about. Now, I think I see the reason for that now. Uh, the reason being that Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God as we knew it were not to be a part of the deliverance and the restoration. So God stopped short of letting them know about that, just like he did the apostles from knowing when his return would be. So they had that motivation, because had we known that and been preaching that, and then Herbert Armstrong died and we got all scattered like we did. Uh, we said, well, where's the, where's the deliverance? Where's the restoral? Because it was just the opposite. We were torn apart instead. And now only those who have been torn apart are beginning to understand really why and what could be done about it, and then what God would do in return. And that's basically been the message for the last 27 years, is repentance, deliverance, and restoration, because that's what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and even a lot of the New Testament are about. But it had to be at a time when it would apply to the people that were then available. And we have a, a vast number of people out there uh, who have been scattered, and the restoration and deliverance is just ahead of us now. And some of them are prepared through repentance that they've been doing that you and I have no idea about, that God will stir to come because they'll have the right attitudes. They can be taught the doctrines that they haven't known about, pretty quickly. <clears throat> but the attitude toward God and putting Him first in every way is the overall key to everything. If you are willing to be taught, you're willing to learn, 
and not stick to your own understanding, then you have an opportunity to learn and to grow. But so many times people get stuck on something that they think they understand and are not willing to listen sometimes to plain Scripture because it would change their view. So you have to have people who are teachable, who are willing to learn. <coughs> and that gets in the way of self and human nature and ego and all those things. But that they have to be. I've heard it said, well, God may just call anyone he wants from wherever. I don't believe that. Uh, he said it's a remnant. A remnant of what? A remnant of what was, not an addition of a whole lot more. Many called, few chosen. Now, there may be a very few here and there that he might stir to come anyway, but how many times does he say remnant? What's a remnant? It's a piece of what was. It's not something else. If I have a remnant of a shirt, it's a piece of a shirt I used to own. It's not six new shirts. It's a remnant of what was. He told us as we got scattered to go repent. And those who would, he would be willing to use. So that was his instruction. Most will not have done so. They will not. He said 10%. A 10% remnant. And that's generally what you have when you have a remnant of carpet or, or, a car, or of a cloth that they make into things. Is a 10% remnant is kind of the standard in the industry. You expect when you're putting carpet down to have a 10% waste or most building materials. And that's the term that God uses. Let's go again and pick up in Isaiah 45. This is where we left off last week. A couple of points I want to make as we go through here, because it's talking about uh, deliverance and restoral. And a lot of this will be about restoral here because that's what we've been looking forward to for a long time with a lot of hope. Once I and we saw that these scriptures apply not just to the millennium, which is the way we thought about it in Worldwide. Oh, that's just all about the millennium. Isaiah 35, who we'd go to with the desert blooming and all that, that's just the millennium. Isaiah 11 with the children playing on the snake hole and all this stuff, that's just the millennium. But then we started looking at the context around those scriptures and realized that a lot of what was going on right there in the context was the things that are still happening today in the world. Still war, still the Assyrian coming, all these things hadn't ended. And when the millennium starts, the Assyrians going to be gone. All those armies will have been destroyed. Uh, and yet here they were in the middle of scriptures we thought were millennial, still about to occur. I think we understand that by now. We don't have to argue it. It's true that God is restoring here at the end after he delivers. I hope the repentance is getting to be sufficient that the deliverance and restoration is not far from us. That's what I'm hoping 
But here he talked in chapter 45, as we went into a little last week, uh, how he's going to crack the earth open and show stores of gold and silver and other treasures of his temple, maybe some of the graves of the patriarchs from things that I have read about things that are hidden there, that quite a few people in the world in the last few hundred years and even in the last hundred and even more recently have been in the American Southwest looking for these things because there are enough records about it that they have come looking and turned up empty. But there were at least two and maybe more men a little over a hundred years ago that saw what he's talking about here. I've read enough and seen enough that I believe they actually saw it. And one of them said there was enough gold there to pave the street all the way to New York. He says it was beyond human imagination to grasp what was there. We're talking about gold that supersedes by far what Russia, China, India, and all the other nations have stockpiled today. I firmly believe that. Because God said the gold and the silver is mine and it is something that the world lusts after, and he's going to give it to a little bitty group of people for his servant Jacob's sake, and they will have more than the rest of the world combined. We are on the edge soon of God cracking that open, I think, and revealing the biggest treasure on earth. God does things in a big way when he does them. And it will be there for the sight of the whole world to see, but they can't touch it, at least not at first. When the church flees to safety, they will get it. And they'll have it for three and a half years. It even says there in Daniel uh, 12, no, it's 11, end of 11, that they'll set up their shop on the holy mount of God. They'll take over Jerusalem. And they'll think they won. And for three and a half years, they'll be there. And then right at the end, it'll all be taken away from them. And into the lake of fire they go. So, God is going to do great and wonderful things that are beyond our comprehension today. You are going to be among the richest few thousand people on earth. Why do people call themselves elite today? Because they got 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. They think they're the elite. Well, financially at the moment they are. But God is going to take the weak and the base of the world and absolutely confound the wise. And they're going to realize that they are not the elite anymore. God's people are. Are we ready for that? Can we, in humility and meekness, say that's God's and continue to serve Him and love Him and do everything He wants done when we're the richest people on earth? How's it working out for the richest people on earth today? Not too well. They get married and divorced pretty regularly. They get all kinds of problems. 
They worry about their money and what's going to happen to it. They worry about things you don't even begin to worry about. They worry about being shot in the middle of the night so somebody can take what they have. They have a lot of worries. A lot of them have bodyguards that follow them around everywhere they go because they're scared almost to death. All kinds of things they suffer with. But you won't have to if you continue to obey God, and yet here you are. Now, is that a restoral? God restores the wealth of the earth that is His to His little people. What an incredible thing. He didn't do that for Israel, did He? When they came out of the Red Sea? Well, they couldn't have hauled it around for one thing. And the second thing, it's in the promised land. And they never got to the promised land because they wouldn't obey God. And here we are on the edge of the promised land, literally today sitting on the edge of it. And we haven't been restored to these things yet. But it's coming. I'll open the earth and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. So this is being done to promote salvation and righteousness. The leaders of the world today who have thousands of tons of gold are not promoting salvation and righteousness. They're promoting self-aggrandizement and being what they want to be on this earth. That's not what this is for. This is to bring forth righteousness and salvation. He says he's, in verse 13, raised up a man of righteousness, and I will direct his ways, and he'll build my city. Jerusalem has to be rebuilt, because it doesn't exist today. It has been torn completely down and been that way for many generations. They don't even know where it is. You are among probably 200 people on earth who know where the original Jerusalem was. A lot of Mormons know where the original Zion was now. They accept that, but they don't know where Jerusalem was. And people will come and say, Surely God is in you, down there in the verse 14. And God is a God that hides himself. 50. <clears throat> verse 16, They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. <clears throat> they shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. <clears throat> God is going to show such wealth and such greatness that they'll all be ashamed and confused before it. It's got to be a pretty big deal for the people of the earth to be ashamed and confused who have other gods other than the true God. Because this is being done to show who God is. Uh, verse 18, For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He has established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. The elite of this world now are saying that the earth does not need to be inhabited except by a very few people and their robots. But God said, I created it to be inhabited, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to be decimated first, but then it's going to turn around. 
I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I have not said to Jacob, Seek you me in vain. In other words, when all this opens up and God shows it and it confuses the world, God's going to say to His people, I'm not doing this in a dark place. I'm opening it up. I declare the things that are right. Listen to me. You that are escaped of the nations, come to me. Uh, verse 22, Look to me, and be you saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Now that's part of the message of the two witnesses and the witness of the church at the end. That God is God, and there is no one else. That's why this treasure being unveiled has to be such a monstrous thing. It's not a little gold mine, brethren. This is something that will shake the world. We read back there before how it would loosen the loins of kings. A hundred gold coins won't do that. But a vast treasure house of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars maybe, that God has built and reserved will be opened up and it will make them poop their pants. Literally. It'll be that scary. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Before this is done, everybody on earth is going to bow their knee to God. Otherwise, their knees will be broken, it says in another place. They will bow, whether it's stiff or not. Can you imagine right now, I can't, going out anywhere on this earth, any place you choose to visit, and start talking about the true things of God and about the Father and the Son, how many will listen to you? How many will say, oh, yeah, I've been looking for that. I, I need to know, where's God? Help me find God. You won't find it. There might be one person out of ten million that would give you an ear. Not very many. You start talking about the true God, and you're looked upon as crazy. That's all there is to it. But he says these things are going to be so magnificent, so powerful, that everybody ultimately is going to say, Man, that is God. And they'll bow their knee before him. Now, there are always a few who will not, but theirs will be broken and it will bend. <laughs> Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. So the ones that start obeying God first, other people are going to begin to come to them. You don't have to go out somewhere, like I said, in the world and start talking about God and see what response you get, because it'll be bad. But when they see these things that God is going to do, and these riches and treasures are only one of them, 
they're going to begin to come and say, You are of God. Talk to me. Help me. What a change in attitude this is going to be. What, what in your imagination would it take for these eight, nine billion people that are on the earth to all begin to seek God feverishly? I, I, I can't imagine what you'd have to do. So God tells us some of the things He is going to do to cause this to happen. Now, the world is big on materialism, right? We're big on money, big on riches, big on wealth. So God's going to crack a mountain open and show people the greatest wealth that there is. And that's going to have to impress them a great deal. Wow. Best gold mine ever on earth, by far, by many times over. And the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So it goes on beyond just the small gathering at the beginning, the restoration to a restoration in the millennium. It's included, of course. It's just that it's the second wave. First wave is the real small one, and then you're going to have a huge one, a tsunami of people who begin to turn once these things have been done, and once God shows who He really is. And they've seen people who will not obey Him be killed until there's not but about 10% of, them, of people on the earth left. Then they're going to begin to turn to God. Just like we have been scattered, and only about 10% are going to begin to truly turn to God, and He will call them to come build the temple. To build Jerusalem. It says right here, Jerusalem will be built. That's going to also be an amazing thing. Those riches that are there will be used by Jacob to help rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And they're going to see that going up. And at some point, the beast and the false prophet are going to begin to say, maybe that is the true Jerusalem after all. Look at those temple treasures. Look at all that gold. And they're going to covet it Terribly. And then when they bring their armies, and you got this little church of seven, eight, ten, twelve thousand there, the fleet of Zion, you just give it to them. We're out of here. <laughs> See ya. They'll come in and take it over. God will just give it to them. This is what you wanted? Okay, have it. Now come and worship me. Look what I just gave you. I allowed you to have. No. We got it. Thanks. That's, that's good enough. We have our own gods. They won't keep it long. See, it's all gods anyway. It doesn't matter. When they think they have something, they won't. And he'll let them have it. Okay. Now what are you going to do? Well, we're going to keep going the same way we're going. Okay. You'll die soon. See ya. Run along and die now. I've heard that one used sometimes. That's what's going to happen. Chapter 46, then, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle, your carriages were heavy laden, they are a burden to the weary beasts. So people have these gods that they've been worshipping. 
that are going to become wearisome and become a burden to them. The things they thought would make them happy aren't making them happy at all. It's just making them tired. They stoop. They bow down together. <clears throat> they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. God couldn't help them, and they couldn't help themselves. Going into captivity. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, even to your old age. And I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So it's like a pregnant woman delivering a child. It seemed like it took forever, especially the last couple of months. And it was painful, but there'll be joy when it's born. And God will deliver. To whom will you liken me? Good question from God. Who's like me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag, weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith and make it a god. They fall down. Yes, they worship. And yet, they take what gold they have, what silver they have, what they've been able to heap up, and they make that their god. And then God says, oh, well, I have more than you do. And then he opens a mountain. And, wow, they thought they really had something until he shows what he's got. God is going to, a God who has hid himself, he said back there, chapter 45, is going to show himself in dramatic ways that you and I cannot even imagine. Verse 9, remember the former things of old. What have we been doing recently? Reviewing Passover night the Red Sea, the Jordan, the things of old that God has done. He says, remember those things. Think about those. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Some people think they're pretty smart about history, prophecy. They don't know nothing. Not really. But God knows it all. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, the things that are not yet done, there are things that he has not written in this book. We'll probably get to that in a little bit, where he says, you thought you knew everything, but you didn't, because these are things new that I'm doing that you couldn't have known about. Brand new stuff. There's a lot in here that you and I have read that he's going to do, which is incredible. But he says, on top of that, I'm going to do things you haven't even considered because they weren't written down and you didn't know anything about it. I'm anxious to see some of those things. What is he holding in reserve that he hasn't even told about? Some of the things he has told about are incredible. <coughs> like the biggest treasure house on earth, for one thing, that we're just talking about. I will do all my pleasure. My counsel will stand. 
into verse 13, I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So it's all going to be done in the environs of Jerusalem and Zion. Everything will be central to that, because that's where Christ is returning when He does return. That's where He's setting up His government in the millennium. And all these things that are a microcosm of the millennium before then will happen there. <coughs> Christ said that's where He is going to be and dwell with the two witnesses in the remnant church there in Zechariah 2. So, Mohammed will not go to the mountain. The mountain will come to Mohammed, to use the old expression. The world will have to come to Christ where he is. That's why it's important that we understand where this is all to occur and be there. Having head knowledge of it doesn't do you any good unless you go there. Because if Christ is there, that's where you would want to be. Not off somewhere else expecting him to come see you. No, you come to see him says that of the millennium in Zechariah 4. All the peoples of the earth, 14 I mean, all the peoples of the earth will come to Jerusalem to keep the feast. I had some argue with me recently that we don't need to keep the feast. <laughs> well, they were kept in the Old Testament. You can see many scriptures in the New Testament where they were kept. And then Christ says they'll be kept in the Millennium, and all the earth will come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And yet you tell me that you can't find anywhere in the New Testament that we're to keep the Feast? It's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. They just don't see it. <coughs> so in 47 then, he talks of America. O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. There is no throne be taken away. This is the parallel scripture to Revelation 18 where he says uh, this whoring woman is going to be brought down in a day, in an hour, a very short period of time. And that was written thousands of years ago and yet you and I are on the very cusp of it. There isn't a day that goes by today that you don't, if you're reading, that you don't read or see something about nuclear uh, strikes in America being taken down, Britain and Western Europe. Uh, you read about it almost every day, something from Russia that says we'll nuke you and uh, we're getting our nukes ready and putting more and more of them on their border. Uh, I don't know how they set their nation up so close to our missiles, but they did. It's really strange, isn't it? And yet we get, oh, do we get our panties in a wad if they try to put one in Cuba or Venezuela? And we got them all around Russia. <laughs> I can't imagine why they wouldn't like that, can you? <coughs> Verse 3, your nakedness will be uncovered, your shame shall be seen. Uh... Verse 6, he says, I was angry with my people. I polluted my inheritance and give them into your hand. You did show them no mercy. So, the Babylonian religion is ensconced deeply in Washington, D.C. and New York. 
that have mistreated and misused uh, Ephraim particularly, and even the Israelite tribes of Western Europe, and we're leading them to the path of destruction right now along with ourselves. So they, they laid their yoke upon us, and you said you're a lady forever. You dwelt carelessly, verse 8. Say you'd never have widowhood in verse 9. You just are something else. But he says destruction will come suddenly in verse 11. Talks about our merchants. Well, we've been one of the biggest merchants on earth. So right here in the middle of talking about uncovering riches for his people, he's talking again about the destruction of the nation around us and the coming of the Assyrian. Chapter 48, he changes it a bit. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Now he's talking in chapter 47 to the government of our nation, which is Babylon the Great. Uh, Babylon covers the whole earth, as we know. It's Satan's way. But America has been the leader of the way of Satan and has misused and abused the Israelitish people. So this is to Jacob herself. And you use the name of God in the end of the verse, but not in truth nor in righteousness. Using God's name in vain or in evil does no good. It's got to be in truth and in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel, but they don't follow the truth. Uh, verse 4, Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your brow is brass. You won't bow your head, you won't bend to me. You use my name, but you use it in vain and worthlessly. Notice in verse 6, he says, you're stubborn. Then he says, you have heard, see all this, and will you not you declare it? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things that you knew not. They are created new now, not from the beginning, even before the day when you heard them not, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. There's always somebody. There's always somebody around. Who says, oh, I, I knew that. I already knew that. I knew that before you did. Whatever. He says, "No, these are new things. I'm going to do that you could never have heard of, because I never mentioned it anywhere." Now, to me, that's exciting. You know, we've been reading this book for a lot of years, and God is going to do some a lot of things that He said in it. And then he's going to do some things that he's not even mentioned yet. If somebody tells you they're going to give you a, a gift, and they tell you what it is, you begin to anticipate, don't you, of when you will receive that and just what it, exactly it will be. <clears throat> but what if they tell you, I'm going to give you something, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Now your mind begins to go even faster. What could it possibly be? What are they thinking? Is it going to be expensive? Is it going to be something that will be a big surprise? Is it a 
new shirt? You know, or is it something, a new car? What are they going to give me? Your mind begins to turn to try to figure it out. I, this is beyond me, I, I think, when he says that. The mind of God, what has he already given us? The universe, the earth, the sky, the trees, the grass, uh, everything we have here that is so beautiful. And then he's going to deliver us in a mighty way from our enemies and give us the greatest riches on earth. He's already said that. Now, what else has he got in mind? This is really exciting to read. He said in verse chapter 49, verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation to the end of the earth. Now there's another wonderful one to consider. Didn't Christ say when he was here, let your light shine that they may see the glory of God? Don't hide it under a bushel, let it shine. So here, we come back to the Old Testament and he tells us we're going to be on Mount Zion and our light will shine to the whole Gentile world. I didn't ask you earlier if you were going to do that, did I? I asked you what would be the result if you were to go out to this world and start talking to people about God and how well you'd be accepted. Here he says, I'm going to set you on a mountain as a light to the whole world. They'll be able to see it. They'll be able to know about it. They'll have understood by then where Jerusalem is. And it isn't in the Middle East. It'll all happen in southern Utah and northern Arizona. Verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. We've waited, we've anticipated, we've been reading these scriptures for a long time. Just because we've known about these things now for quite a while in our lifetime, doesn't mean they're not true. They're going to happen. But it's easy for humans to begin to say, oh boy, that's so far off, is that ever going to happen? Then he says, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. A mother will forget her sucking child before I forget you. Now, what are the chances of that? Slim and none. (laughs) Slim that a woman will forget her sucking child, none that God will forsake us. Behold, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go forth from you. Rebels will be gone. Attackers will go away. God will deliver us. 
I think I've mentioned last week, Micah 5, how the Assyrian army will come after us and seven, even eight men will chase them off. Kind of like the Gideon story. He won't need many people because he supplies what is necessary to get the job done. Did Gideon and those men, 300 who went with him, have their part? Yeah, they did. It was an important part. But it was God that caused the confusion and ran them off. Verse 18, Lift up your eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to you. As I live, says the Eternal, you shall surely clothe you with them all as with an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. People will come and they will be the attendants to the bride. Attach them to you. You know, a, a bride begins to gather up stuff and attach and make a, a fine, fancy dress and this and that and the other thing that she does. But she is very particular about it. She has her specific ideas about exactly what she wants at her wedding. And we will have very specific ideas from this book about what Christ wants in His bride. And we will attach these people to ourselves and teach them how to be the bride of Christ. Now, what could be a greater job than that? What bigger opportunity and honor than to teach people how to be the bride of the Lord God? That's a big responsibility. It's huge. Now, if those people were out there observing us today, what would they be thinking? Is that the bride of Christ? How's she look? <laughs> then they're going to come, and they will inspect us personally, and we will inspect them personally, and they will have come expecting us to have the answers that they are seeking. They'll come. Are you of God? What does God want of us? Help us, please. Are we ready for that? Big responsibility. The children which you shall have <clears throat> after you have lost the others shall say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give place that I may dwell. For you shall, then you shall say in your heart, Who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, uh, a captive, and removing to and fro? And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. Where have these been? People are going to start showing up. You know, the church is gone. It disappeared. Where would they all go? It just, they just poof, disappeared. And then people are going to start coming because God will stir those same people, a remnant of them, to come back and say, where have you been? <laughs> I'm looking. End of verse 25, he says, I will save your children. End of verse 26, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What's it going to take? 
for the whole world to see that God, the only God, is our God. We're unknown. There's a few people around this area that say, oh, that church out there in cane beds. They kind of know it's here, sort of. They don't know anything about it. Don't ask about it. Don't care about it. Just wish, for the most part, it would get out of their hair, if it's in their hair. What's it going to take for God to have a small group of people and the whole world says, your God is God? What did it take in the movie about the Ten Commandments and Moses, where Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally said, Moses, God is God, or something of that nature? What will it take for the world to acknowledge that? This is going to be stupendous. Incredible. Uh, chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. God has opened your ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. So Isaiah says, God gave me these words to speak to you, to encourage you and strengthen you when you begin to get weary and think, oh man, will this ever happen? These words of Isaiah are here for us, that they might inspire and strengthen and remind us. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. There's a position for us to have. We have learned truth. We have learned a lot of things about what God is going to do and where He's going to do it and how and who with. And we are to latch on to that and have it so firmly set that our jaw is like a piece of flint that it cannot be taken away from us. <coughs> didn't, <coughs> didn't Christ say that even the very elect would be deceived if it were not for Him, for His Holy Spirit? So he says, set your jaw like flint and do not be deceived. You've read these things, you've believed them, don't give them up, endure to the end. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. We are to stand together and face our enemies together and not be turned away. By anything. Let's go to 51. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. That would be you. He says, listen. Look to Abraham your father, the Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Eternal shall comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert 
like the garden of the Lord. And gladness shall be found there, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now, why does he tell uh, us there in Malachi 4 that we are to look for, look to our Father and be turned to our fathers? First Father we need to be turned to is our Heavenly Father. That should be without question. And right here, he also says, turn to the prophets. Here he says, turn to Abraham. So we turn to the prophets. The father, and then the prophets, and then our physical children. Those things have to be resolved wherever possible as well. But if you, you can't do anything for your physical children unless you have a relationship with your heavenly father and with the prophets that he sent which is what we're reading today because we're looking to the prophets. He says, look to Abraham. Was Abraham delivered? And was Abraham restored? There's your good example right there. Abraham wanted a child. Then he was told he'd get a child. And then he didn't have a child. And he waited and he waited. And God finally came and said, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And it says that he and Sarah both were way beyond that. He couldn't perform, and she didn't have any seed left. Menopause. All over with. How are we going to have a kid? We can't even do anything. And then it happened. Now, there's a deliverance. There was a woman who got pregnant. Because God did what? He restored both of them. And then the delivery came. And that restoration lasted. It wasn't just for one night so they could have a baby. After Sarah died, he got married to Keturah and had a whole batch of kids. When God restored, he restored. Everything was fixed. Not fixed in the modern terminology, but repaired. Restored. What did he promise us? Deliverance and restoration. Make it like Eden here. Now, what's that going to do to the world? You know, a lot of people have visited Bryce Canyon and Zion and the Grand Canyon and seen all this desert out here. What if it's turned like Eden and he plants seven trees in the wilderness, Isaiah 41? That's churches, but it also means physical trees. And he's going to make rivers and streams here in the desert. What an incredible thing. It's hard to imagine that out of all this dryness will come rivers and streams. I was listening to uh, some people sing that song about this old prospector had his donkey out in the desert looking for water for his donkey. And as they were singing this, some clown in the group said, Why would you go to the desert to look for water? <laughs> go somewhere there's water if you want to give your donkey some water. Yeah. Here we are out in this desert. And God's going to make it bloom like a rose. 
the wilderness will turn to the Garden of Eden. Now there's a restoration for you. Did he do that in Acts 2 at Pentecost? No. Stayed just like it was. A lot of people were healed. A lot of people repented. A lot of spiritual growth occurred, but not physical. This has got to be both. Look at it this way. We are to be a light to the whole world. That which God has restored. That which God is blessing beyond imagination. Now, if God just blessed us spiritually, and we all had wonderful attitudes, and we all loved Him with all our heart, and loved each other as ourselves, and got along wonderfully, how would that impress the world? They wouldn't know about it. They wouldn't be impressed by it. Now, what if he restored the rivers and the pools and the four rivers of Eden became very obvious what they were? And he made this place like a garden. Now, that would get their eye, would it not? This restoral is going to be an incredible thing that God does. So he restored Abraham and Sarah. And then he goes on from there to say, you think that's a restoral? Now watch what I do in the desert. (laughs) It's not just one man and one woman I'm going to restore to the capacity to have a child. I'm going to restore this whole area. And it will impress the world. It's a light to the people, it says at the end of verse 4. There's that light again from Zion for the whole world to see. Verse 5, My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. Verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. So, as the earth is being destroyed by these end-time wars, and misuse and pollution, he's going to have one little area that is as beautiful as it was the day it was created. <clears throat> Look to God. Verse 9, Awake, awake, put on your strength, the arm of the Lord. So, he says he's going to reveal his strong arm there in Zechariah 3 in the person of Zerubbabel. So he says, wake up, wake up, it's time. Don't you know it's time? Do people come in three hours before it's time to get up and say, awake, awake? No, they wait till it's time to get up. And then they come shake your leg and say, get up, wake up. So this is being delivered to us now with understanding for the first time. It's been in here for thousands of years, but no one understood the meaning of the last day of unleavened bread, of deliverance and restoration at the end, where a mini kingdom of God will be set up. He says, I'll come and dwell there. I will rule there. Well, that means the kingdom's there. And that means that there's a few thousand people there, and a kingdom has to have subjects. So Christ will be here. His people will be here, 
and they will have a territory that has been turned into the Garden of Eden, which will be his little kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming way before we ever realized in Worldwide Church of God. We thought it wouldn't be set up until the millennium. No, he's going to set up a little kingdom. He's going to show the world what the kingdom of God is all about. And they will be astounded. And they'll look at it and say, oh my. And then reject it. And then they will have to be killed. And then he will come and set up his eternal kingdom. Now this is eternal in the sense that it lasts, once it's set up here in the next little while, once it's here, it'll never be destroyed because those people who are in it will be turned into bride of Christ and be part of what's coming afterward. So once it's established, it's here forever. And in the right spot. Anyway, he says, get up. Get to work. Verse 11, Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. So this is in that little kingdom of God. And they're going to be happy there. They'll be restored there. I, even I, am he that comforts you. What does he say in Isaiah 40 at the beginning of this restoral? Comfort you, my people, for her punishment is finished. This group of people will not be punished anymore that is in this little kingdom. They'll come to Zion. The one who comforts you, who are you that you should be afraid of the man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? So this isn't the millennium. There's still people around who will hate us. Still people around who would kill us. That won't be the case in the millennium. They will have all been destroyed and there won't be any enemies around. But he's telling us right here in the context they're still going to be there. We'll be in Zion. They'll come around to destroy and God won't let them touch us. A bubble over and a fire around. And they can't do a thing about us. They'll wish they could. He says to wake up again in 17, Stand up, O Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Is that the church? Yeah. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, speaking of the church. So he says for his leader, Zerubbabel, to stand up, and wake up, and then tell the church to wake up. You who have drunk of the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Verse 18, There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth, neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. Where in the church do you see anyone capable of leading God's people to the right place? He says he will provide one. Just one. And he tells him here to wake up and get to work. And then he tells the church to wake up and follow. 
chapter 52, he says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for thenceforth <coughs> there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself, wake up, sit up, don't be walked on anymore. And then he says, down in verses 7 and 8, that those who publish peace, that bring good tidings of good, that publish salvation, that says to Zion, it, well, it just says him, it doesn't say them. Just one person brings the message of good tidings and peace, that brings good tidings of good, and says to Zion, your God reigns. There's no one around other than one that will say those things. Thy watchmen, now here's more than one, two, shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring back or bring again Zion. They will not agree with each other until the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3. <clears throat> then they will see eye to eye and work together to help and teach the remnant that will come. And that's the time. People keep telling, saying to me, well, when's the time? Isn't it time? It looks like it's time. No, it's not time until God begins to turn and bless the church instead of curse and scatter it. Well, you see that somewhere, and it's going to be around this area, has to be, says so they'll come to Zion. Where they hear about this is where they're going to come. And he tells us it'll be at Zion. So whether it's you and me or it's someone else, it'll be at Zion. This is the only place I know of that this is being taught. And it's at Zion. So when they come to Zion and come together, things will move forward then. And then it says in verse 9, Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. They'll be coming from the waste places all over. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Comfort you, comfort you, O Jerusalem. Isaiah 40, verse 1. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. So the Zerubbabel will be a signet to the world about the church, as it says there in the end of Haggai 2. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. They're going to see it at Mount Zion, Mount Ephraim, on God's holy hill. Depart you, depart you, go you out from there, touch no unclean thing, Go you out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. And it says you not go with great haste or in flight, but God will be the rear guard. I, Jeremiah 50 says he'll come ahead of the, Rus the, the northern army or Russia and their allies and escape ahead of it. So there'll be time for that to occur. doesn't say how long. Now, when it talks about the flight from Jerusalem, when the armies gather around it, not to even go back in your house, hurry, run, go as fast as you can go, and get out of Jerusalem and go to Zion. 
That's a hasty flight. This one, it says it's not hasty. It may occur over a few weeks or a few months or whatever uh, until the Assyrian army is breathing down your neck and you barely get out, but you've had time to do it. Word has to go around that God is beginning to do signs and wonders, that he's beginning to restore the desert. And then people will say, sounds like God's there, I'm on my way. And they will begin to gather. Who has believed this report? And then it talks about Christ and his suffering and how he is the one that makes all this possible. And then in chapter 54 it says, Sing, O barren, you that did not bring forth children. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. So he says, <laughs> the bride of Christ has not had many people, but that's going to change. Enlarge the place of your tent. Get more room. Fear not, verse 4, for you shall not be ashamed. Verse 5, the maker, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Not yet, but he's going to have to use people like you and me to show the world that He is God. We will have a significant part in that. He is the major part, of course. He is the one who shows treasures. He is the one who restores the desert. He is the one that brings a people and heals them. People that are lame and blind and deaf will see and hear and have legs like deer. Pray for George that he stick around long enough he gets his deer legs. These things are real. God's going to do them. And it's going to show the whole world that He is God. And then how is it going to be with the economy? Let's look a little at 55. Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. He that has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It will be provided says there in Zechariah 2, will be much men and cattle. So you got milk, you got honey, you got wine, you got cattle. You got everything you need. The economy will be great in this little area, and in the rest of the world, people will be starving to death. Where you want to be, I know where I want to be. Incline your ear and come and you'll live. Then he says, I've given, verse 4, him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Someone like David, who will be there to lead, to guide, and to help. So God's going to provide all the physical conditions that will just be absolutely wonderful that the world can see but cannot partake in. They'll give us righteous leadership. And we can serve God and worship Him in absolute peace and security. That's the message of the last day of unleavened bread. Repentance from our wrong attitudes and then His deliverance and an incredible restoral of all things.
Mafrodivet.